You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 241, Sheila Ray Gregoire and The Great Sex Rescue. Are you stuck in your office spinning your wheels? Is it time for you to get away from your business so you can focus on the business? Maybe a retreat. I'm Katie Horner of the For Your Success podcast, and though my husband and I started out in full-time ministry, living well below the poverty line, our six-figure business now gives us ministry opportunities that far outweigh the ones we had in full-time ministry. Join me and my husband, Tap, on April 30th at the Get Out of the Boat Christian Business Virtual Retreat to recharge your batteries and let us show you how fun it can be to walk out your faith in your business with joy and confidence, because doing the business that God created you to do can be your best worship. The Get Out of the Boat Christian Business Retreat is April 30th from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., and you can attend from anywhere online. We can't wait to see you there. You can get all the info and register for your ticket right now at getoutoftheboat.com. Hey friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I am your humble host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad that you've downloaded. I'm glad that you've picked up this episode. It's going to be an interesting conversation. I can't wait. If you haven't had a chance, um, you know, if you want to support the show, go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. That's where we keep show notes. So you want links to books and blogs and all the things that we talk about on this episode, you'll find that, but you'll also find the little Patreon button. Uh, if you want to support the show, we'd love to have your support keeps us running and uh, means a lot to us every time somebody joins. Okay. So today we have a really great guest. I'm so excited about this. Been looking forward to it for a little while. Our guest, she's a popular speaker, marriage blogger, and author of nine books, including the good girl's guide to great sex and her latest book, the Great Sex Rescue, which I got to be honest with you, friends, I think should be in the pantheon that's kind of coming out of this movement of these books that are really, really powerful. Uh, this is one of those that you that you should be reading. It's, it's going to join that and help further the movement. Uh, this book is co-authored with her daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach and Joanna Sawatsky. Our guest is Sheila Ray Gregoire. Sheila, welcome to Halfway There. Did I get close? I didn't even get close, did I? To be here. I, B plus. B plus. Hey, welcome to the show. So halfway there, we like to talk about your story, but uh, kind of mentioned all of this, uh, you know, sort of the broad strokes. You're a blogger. You're a popular speaker. Um, this new book, and this I think is really, really fascinating, going to change a lot of minds and directions, called The Great Sex Re Rescue, which you wrote with your daughter, which is probably very interesting, right, Rebecca? And I think it's going to be really, really influential. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of where you where you started with that and kind of where God has you right now. And then I want to go back and actually hear more of your story. Okay, well, I'll start my story in January of 2019. And then we'll go even more backwards when you want to hear the rest of my story. Perfect. Um, I've been blogging about marriage and sex since 2008. Uh, I good girls guide to great sex out in 2012. Um, so I write about this stuff all the time, but I had never actually read a Christian marriage book until January, 2019, when I read love and respect. 
and I know that's weird, but I have this like abnormal fear of plagiarizing. So I just didn't read any other books in my niche, you know? And then on that day, I read Love and Respect and I turned to the sex chapter because that's what I write about. So I thought, hey, let's read this part first. And it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my house because it was so abysmal. It said that if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Husbands have a need for physical release. You need to have sex or your husband will have an affair. Husbands come under satanic attack if they don't get physical release. Um, you need to be aware of his struggle with lust if you want him to understand your body image issues. And that was it. That was the whole message about sex in this yeah. book. And we were so appalled that we wrote a whole series, a whole week-long series on love and respect. And when we did that, we were flooded with emails from women who had been abused and who said that that book enabled abuse. So I was really naive. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm an eternal optimist or what, but we compiled a report and sent it in to focus on the family because they promote the book. And we thought maybe they just don't know. Like maybe they're ignorant that this book hurts. And they never got back to me. Um, until around a year later, I threatened to go public. And then they sent me this short little email. Um, and we got talking and we said, you know, they ignored a couple of hundred, but can they really ignore thousands? And so we decided that we would simply do the most comprehensive, biggest research project that's ever been done of Christian women and look at which evangelical teachings contribute to really bad sex and really bad marriages for women. So that we're no longer debating whether or not a certain view of marriage is right or wrong. Now we're debating, okay, you can believe that if you want, but she'll have a 38% lower chance of orgasming. And we just thought if we put some data to it, so it's no longer just a doctrinal debate, maybe we'll get somewhere. Oh, I still yeah. don't know that we will. Maybe I'm still an eternal optimist, but that was the idea behind it. Well, okay. So one of the things I said is I think this book, along with a few others, um, like a church called Tove and Jesus and John Wayne, and I think Me Too by Mary DeMuth needs to be read by everybody. Um, all of those, like I, I think, and the, the one Chuck DeGroat, is it uh, when narcissism came to comes to church? Mm -hmm. Like there's a sort of collection of books that I'm seeing come together for people who don't want to leave their faith, don't want to abandon um, Jesus, but are noticing, hey, there's some problems in evangelicalism in the way that we've been doing church. One of those is the way we've talked about or not talked about sex. And so uh, I think this is really super important. And I think it's going to it's going to move the needle, uh, hopefully, in if I can. Yeah. In, in the positive direction. All right. So um, that's really fascinating. I've got lots and lots of questions, but I want to come back to that because I want to hear some of your story, right? So, because uh, that's what we do here. We talk about people's faith journeys. I'm curious, probably some of realizing some of those things had some spiritual effects on you. So we'll come back to that. But where'd you grow up and where'd you kind of, where'd you start? I grew up evangelical. Um I, I, I joke that we've been pretty much every denomination in the evangelical world because it always just depended on what city we lived in and, you know, what churches were around that were good. Um, but I've been everything from evangelical Presbyterian to Alliance to Baptist. Um, 
I think the best church we ever went to was an evangelical Anglican one about 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago now when we lived in Toronto. Um, and we were just seeped in evangelicalism. All of us have been tended to go to very complementarian churches. Uh, but that's never what I really believed. Oh, interesting. <laughs> in terms of, of gender roles. I remember when I was 16 years old, um, I was just about ready to ditch the faith. Like I, I was abs, I was almost suicidal really because I loved Jesus. I truly loved Jesus, but I couldn't understand why I wasn't allowed to teach or do certain roles, even though I knew God had gifted me in that area. Um, Cause I was often asked to, I, I had been on missions trips. I, I, I was often asked to speak um, in different churches around Toronto about my missions role, but, but then they would always tell me I had to be careful what I said so that I wasn't teaching. I could only ever share what happened. And it was, it was just very disturbing. And so I started to read some books that were more egalitarian in nature and it really opened my eyes and it gave me a lot of freedom, but I stayed in evangelical churches. So it's like, I, that's what we always believed my husband and me, but we were in these churches that didn't believe that. And we raised our girls in churches that didn't believe that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, but so, and this was in Canada? Yes. You were growing up in? Okay. So for some of us, you know, in the States, there can be some differences. So what, so when you talk about evangelicalism, is it very similar to American evangelicalism or is it? Um, yes. The difference is it's not political. Evangelicalism oh. in the U.S. is very tied to politics. Very evangelicalism in Canada really isn't. In fact, um, on Parliament Hill, when the when they get together, when the MPs get together to pray, there's there's representatives from every party, and that's normal. So, okay. you know, Christianity isn't associated with a particular political party in the same hmm. way in Canada. That's not bad. Okay, so you, so you didn't have that kind of political charge, but you did have, it sounds like, some gender kind of teaching uh, <laughs> as, as part of what, part of the tradition. Um, interesting. Okay. So when did your faith, you know, it sounds like you had a Christian family. When, when did your faith sort of become your own? You know, did you have a moment? Was it just sort of always there? How'd that go? Very early. Um, I've all, we, my husband and I always thought we'd be missionaries that didn't work out for different reasons, but now I think it's kind of funny given how many people from Nigeria and South Africa and places read my blog every day. So there you go. <laughs> maybe you end up doing these things anyway. Um, but I, I, we went through a lot of testing in, in our first few years of marriage were rough. And then five years into marriage, we had a son who passed away. Um, and in that moment, one of the talk, one of the doctors said to us, you know, you should know that 50% of couples divorce within a year of something like this, which isn't true, but it was anyway, that's what she said. And we made the decision right then that we had just lost our son. We weren't going to lose each other. And I think that made us cling to each other more. Um, and we also didn't want to lose our faith in the middle of all that. So I see that as a real time of understanding that life with God doesn't need to be happy for it to be real. Mm. Um, and your faith can still be genuine, even when you're grieving. It doesn't mean you're spiritually weak to grieve. And that was something important for me to wow. learn, I think. That's really good. It doesn't mean you're spiritually weak to grieve. Yes. Even Jesus cried, right, at, at Lazarus's uh, death, which is pretty interesting. Um, 
I love that. So did that season, you know, I often ask that about, uh, about the dark down the soul, the spiritual desert, you can call it lots of things, but um, was that kind of a, a season like that for you? In a lot of ways, I actually grew closer to God then. I think my, my spiritual, my dark periods of the soul have been more disillusionment with church um, situations as, as my kids got older as we were raising kids in this. And then as we've been delving more and more into writing about marriage and sex and seeing how the evangelical world has responded, I think that's what's been far more disillusioning than anything with God. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. I think, and that's not uncommon, is it? Right. There's a lot of people wrestling with that right now. Yeah. And you know what you said about those books and that I I feel a great honor to be included. especially in Scott McKnight's. That's a great book. Oh yeah. But I feel so much like for the last three years, I I remember saying, even before I read love and respect, I remember saying, God is shaking the church right now. Like everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And he has just shaken Mm. everything. And I'm so excited to see what happens when it's all done. (laughs) And I feel like this is all he, he arranged for all of us to write important books in slightly different areas. Yeah. It's just all coalescing all at the same time, you know, reclaiming biblical womanhood is coming out with Beth Allison Barr in April. Like there's a lot of great mm. books coming out and uh, I'm excited to be part of that. Oh, it's amazing. I think we really need that. Um, how did you, so I'm really curious about this because, well, let me ask it this way first. Did you, do you feel like you have some sort of prophetic tendencies? I don't know how you feel about that. If you've been in sort of reform churches, maybe not, but. I've been called that actually. I remember um, a lot of people have told me that's my spiritual gift and by prophetic tendencies, I just want to stress that doesn't mean that you can see the future in the same way. It just means that you're able to discern the times. Right. Um, And, and, and that you feel called to speak out. And that's what I've been doing for the last few years. Yeah. That's interesting. So I'm going to ask about where you kind of, when you first noticed that, because I'm, I'm curious about that, but yeah, absolutely. With prophecy or that kind of prophetic kind of gift, I live with one. My wife is a, is that. And so she can't, there's a lot of things that she just can't let go. Right. She's like that. It, it's like this fire in your bones and you have to speak out about it. And it sounds like you experienced that. Where did you find, when did you first like experience that kind of, you know, righteous fire? It's been in my writing largely um, on a personal level. When my daughters were teenagers, we were involved in Bible quizzing, which is about as geeky and nerdy as you can get, but it was actually quite a good program. And they both of them memorized like word for word, more than half of the old Testament, which is pretty amazing. That is pretty and, cool. Or new Testament, sorry, new Testament and quizzed on it and everything. Um, but there were some churches that were involved in our district that were really legalistic and were, and the kids in those churches were not doing well on an emotional level. And I could see that. And they were, they were being spiritually abused. I could see. Mm. And I was really upset about this. And I was trying my darndest to do something at the committee level and at the district level. And I've gotten nowhere. I spent two years of emotional energy getting nowhere. Um, but I couldn't, I remember being up all night writing emails and trying to say exactly the right thing and nothing ever worked. Um, and I learned then about two things. First of all, I learned the importance of shaking the dust off your feet at times. And that sometimes you can't wait for those in authority to do the right thing. You just need to reach out to people where you can. 
And so even if those in authority were never going to do what was right, I could still reach out to the kids that I knew and try to help them and let them know I was still here for them. Um, and I still see them on Facebook and I still try to respond because a lot of them are in crisis now. Um, but the other thing I learned was that I do have a real sense of justice. Like I, I, I really, my heart is with the oppressed. When I see injustice, I can't handle it. And I need, and I need to speak out. And so learning how to channel that into something where I'm not just kicking against the goads, so to speak, but I'm actually doing something that is fruitful. And that's what we've been trying to do with the great sex rescue is we knew we weren't getting through to Emerson Eckridge. We knew we weren't getting through to love and respect, but if we get through to everybody who listens to focus on the family and who listens to raise love and respect, then, then it's like we're bypassing the gatekeepers. Right. Which is one of the opportunities that we have today, right? Is that we can, we can, you can speak to just go speak to your audience and go directly to people. We don't have the gatekeepers anymore. They're kind of mad about it, but that's okay. They, they deserve to yeah. lose their position as far as I'm concerned. That's why I'm a podcaster. Um, very, very fascinating. So that's kind of been part of, uh, part of who you are. How did you get into blogging and, and writing a, writing a, a sex blog? Cause that seems to me like <laughs> the kind of thing most people don't do, right? You don't really grow up thinking, I know what I want to do when I grow up. No, yeah. exactly. Um, well, I, in 2008, I'd already had a few small books published with a small publisher, um, mostly about parenting, motherhood. And everyone told me I needed a platform if I was going to get a bigger book published. So in 2008, the way to get a platform was to blog. Yep. So I started to blog and I was slowly attracting readers, but not that much. But I found that the more I wrote about sex, the more people showed up. And my husband and I had been speaking at marriage conferences. We always had to do the sex talk because nobody else wanted to do it. And my husband's a physician, so he'll talk about anything. He doesn't <laughs> care. And I don't care. I'll talk about anything. So we always got the sex talk. And because of that, I was asked up in Canada to do um, some magazine articles about it, to do a couple of TV shows, 100 Huntley Street, where I was the guest talking about sex because they needed somebody and nobody does this. And I just got slotted into those roles without ever intending it. And so in 2010 or 11, I was talking to my agent and I said, I do have this idea for a book, but I don't know if it's any good. I said, I'd love to write the good girl's guide to great sex, like about how you know, people with more of a Christian worldview can have great sex without all the weird purity culture stuff. And that sold. And ever since then, I've just been writing about sex <laughs> since 2012. I mean, sometimes it's, I did a series on, um, you know, mental load and emotional labor last June and on emotional maturity. And so it's not only sex, but it, it all comes back to that somehow. Yeah. And that's what you're in about now looks like. So mm -hmm. that's good. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting the way that that kind of, you kind of got, you know, put into those places. And then that's kind of where, where God led you. How do you, do you see that as God's sort of leading in a certain way? Yeah, very much. So I remember when I was in my master's in sociology, I was always planning on doing a PhD and for various reasons I didn't, which I'm very glad about. I just decided I couldn't handle being in academia because of the way everything, everyone was pretending to be so, um, knowledgeable and like they understood everything but it was also airy fairy and none of it made sense when you start reading the journal articles and I'm just not like that so I couldn't do it but I remember wanting to do my PhD because I wanted to write the definitive book on why gender hierarchy doesn't work mm. and when I gave up my PhD I figured oh well I guess I'll never be able to do that 
And yet I think with the great sex rescue, we have done that, but just from a different angle, because there's so many books written about why gender hierarchy doesn't work. But this is a book that actually addresses the same thing without addressing biblical gender roles. And it's like sex is the way in, you know, sex is the way that you can get complementarians, egalitarians, really super hierarchical complementarians to all read something because everybody wants great sex, you know, people and, and a lot of women are like, hello, I'm not reaching orgasm. And no matter what their view on gender, this is still something they want. And so when we can present the research and we can say, Hey, when you think that he is, is entitled to sex, your sexual, you know, responsiveness goes way down. <laughs> like there's certain key beliefs that are associated with really bad sexual outcomes for women. And those key beliefs tend to be taught in these books that are very hierarchical and complementarian. So it's like, I'm taking it down, but just from a different angle. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. So you kind of were on this path for a long time. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I do want to talk about, about this. Cause I, I'm fascinated by your story and how you kind of gotten, gotten here. Um, I'm interested, uh, I guess I should ask about like where, what has kind of studying these things and writing these things kind of done for your own faith. You mentioned earlier, your little disillusioned with like the church's response that that's kind of disturbing. Has it, has it done anything else to your faith or your relationship with the Lord? I found it very difficult. It's, it's been, I've been in a lot of ways in a dry spell for a couple of years. I'm really coming out of that now, but it's just really hard to see how much the Bible has been used to Mm. hurt women, especially, but you know, men as well, because we've lost the sense of what real intimacy is. We turn sex into something transactional. And we've lost real intimacy, which is what God wants for us. I mean, God is an intimate God, <laughs> even within himself. You know, the whole idea of a trinity is a deep intimacy. And that's what we were designed for. And we've settled for such a cheap substitute. And the fact that people truly don't care. Like when I write that, you know, women need to feel like they have a right to say no. The consent actually matters. And then I get men telling me that I'm just speaking to itching ears and that God will judge me and, you know, (laughs) Satan is gotten a hold of me. And these are pastors. A lot of them are pastors who comment on my blog. Yeah. Did you get the Jezebel comment? said like, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm thinking (laughs) of actually making Jezebel mugs for all of us. Oh, that'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Okay. So. Yeah, that's you said something really interesting there about, you know, we've made sex transactional. And I have to ask the question. I don't know if you thought of it this way. This is where my mind goes. I think we've made God transactional, right? Mm. I think what we've done, if we look at the atonement and because we've had this influence of lawyers through the last, I don't know, thousand years or so who've been become our theologians, um, we've got this very courtroom kind of version of the gospel. That's, that's only, well, you know, and, and I get it. There's, there is substitutionary atonement and I understand all that, but I think that actually has this trickle down effect into other things that are very, very practical, like our sexual relationships. That's really interesting. 
I think, yeah, I think you're right. I, what I've been coming back to again and again, um, and the verses that I keep returning to are Matthew 20, 25 to 28, you know, where Jesus says, you know, the gentle Gentiles lord it over you and try to have authority. I'm not saying it correctly, but you know, we know <laughs> try to practice about. authority over you, you know, but it, it's not to be so with you for the son of man, you know, came not to be served, but to serve. Um, and that that is the heart of the gospel. And that's a lot of the meaning of the cross that Jesus showed us that it isn't about power. And in a way that power and, and authority don't really coexist. Like you can't have moral authority if you're also exercising power because then you lose all moral authority. And, um, you know, the reason that he spoke with someone who had authority is because he was speaking to someone without power. He was just speaking and that gave him that moral authority. And yet we're all searching for power and we're searching for power within relationships. And even in sex, I mean, I, I got into this a little bit in the book, but um, Mark Driscoll said some really gross things about how women should get down on their knees and service their husbands and repent of not giving them oral sex and made sex into a very power dynamic thing. And you're missing out again on this whole idea of what real intimacy is. If the only thing that can get you turned on is that you're degrading someone and that you're over them, that is not of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's not of Jesus, that, which is very fascinating. So I've been kind of stuck this year on um, John 13, which is sort of that same idea, right? Jesus sits down or he takes, he gets up and he washes his disciples feet. And then he says, look, don't, do you see what I've done? You know, don't, don't do this or do go and do the same thing. Right. I am your teacher and you're not b- bigger than me. Right. So serve, but I don't understand how that, um, has come to be disregarded, particularly in our, in our gender relationships and sexual relationships. Yeah. Because women are really the ones who are told to serve. Right. Um, We are told over and over and over again, not to deprive him, which is a total misuse of first Corinthians seven, three to five. Um, You know, first Corinthians seven, three to five, first of all, for those of you who don't know it, and again, I'm not going to quote this perfectly. My daughters could, but <laughs> yeah, this this is the passage where it says like, don't deprive one another for or except for for a season of time by mutual agreement. Yes. Uh, yeah, that. And it start yeah, it starts off by saying the husband has to fulfill his marital duties to his wife, which is interesting because it means that her marital her her needs are mentioned first in the passage. The wife has to fulfill hers to her husband. Her body doesn't belong to her alone, but to him. His body belongs to her and then do not deprive each other. And the whole purpose of that is that it's mutual. And Paul was writing at a time when, you know, in in Roman times, husbands had absolute authority over their wives' bodies to the extent that they could murder their wives and not be prosecuted for it. And Paul walks into that and says, the wife has authority over your body. So that was hugely revolutionary. Um, and then what happens in our in our evangelical books is that this passage is used to tell women you need to have intercourse with your husband when he wants it. And that's not what the verse is saying, because what the verse is talking about is this life-giving sexual relationship. And we know from scripture, from different parts of scripture, that sex is supposed to be something which is deeply intimate, you know, from Genesis chapter four, that Adam knew his wife Eve. Like that, that word for to know 
is the same word that's used in the Psalms when, when David says, search me and know me. Like God is saying that sex is more than physical. It's this deep, intimate knowing. So we know from scripture that, that sex is intimate. And we know from that passage that it's totally mutual. We know from the Song of Solomon that it's totally pleasurable. So it's talking about this mutual, pleasurable, intimate relationship that we're not supposed to deprive each other of. But that is used to say women have to have one-sided intercourse. Like, and it gets down, I think what it really gets down to is what is our definition of sex? Because I think most people, when they think of sex, they think of just intercourse. But in our survey, what we found is that the majority of women who can reach orgasm do not reliably orgasm through intercourse alone. They need a whole lot of other things. And women find other things far more reliable to reach orgasm than intercourse. So if we're saying that what that passage means is that you have to have intercourse with each other or you're depriving each other. Why is one-sided intercourse depriving her of anything? Like, like how is not having one-sided intercourse leaving her deprived if she's not getting anything out of it anyway? You know, that's not what the passage means. Right. Yeah. Just telling women to do it is kind of, regardless of their own level of desire, or whatever is, is sort of going in the wrong direction, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's against that, that passage. Um, that's fascinating. What, so I'm curious about your, the survey, cause you guys, you said 20,000 women, you surveyed yeah. 20,000. How did you do that? And like, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And it was a long survey. Like average was around 24 minutes, I believe taking it. Like it was 130 questions minimum. Lots of people answered wow. more than that. So depending on how you answered certain questions, you might get extra questions. So 130 minimum. Um, about half of them came, well, no, less than half came from my blog. We also had a lot of prizes for other bloggers who were sharing the link. We had prizes for my readers who were sharing the link. And so more than 50% did not come from my group, which is great. That's what we wanted. Um, but we also had a large, we can tell we had a large um, distribution of views because we were specifically asking about even different evangelical teachings. So we had to have in our survey group, people who believed that thing and people who didn't believe that thing, because we needed to compare them. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a very big cross section of the evangelical world, which was wonderful. Yeah, really, really interesting. Okay, so I know that you talk about all this in the book, but so you talk about some of the lies that you've been taught. We've been talking about some of these, right? Like, okay, that that women should just have sex for because men want it. What are some of the other lies that you found that have been sort of prominently taught and and popularized? All men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right. Which is interesting. So I've seen you make this point. I know you make it in the book and I've seen you kind of say it on Twitter too. Like that's not true. Not all men str struggle with lust or we're sort of setting men up to struggle with lust by the way that we teach them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the big ones that affects men even more than women where we have really, really heaped a huge load of shame on guys for no reason. Because what we've basically told guys is if you feel sexually attracted to someone, you have lusted. Hey. And that's just simply not true. I mean, you can notice a woman is beautiful and then go on with your life and think nothing else of it. Like you have not lusted just because you find someone attractive. Jesus said, whoever looks with lust 
at a woman has already committed adultery. So there's there's two elements there. First of all, you're looking, which is a deliberate action, seeing, noticing, those aren't deliberate. Those are not in the same category. So looking is a deliberate action and then looking with intent, like looking with lust. So it's, it goes beyond even looking. It's looking with the intent of using her for my own sexual gratification. So imagining her naked, um, imagining doing things with her, whatever it might be. Like when you are deliberately doing that, that is lust. If a picture of a woman pops into your head because you saw her today, that's not lust unless you do something with that picture. And so we've set all kinds of guys up to feel great shame. And, and we've set men up to see to be so hyper vigilant about this that they end up seeing all women as potential threats. So they end up in the guise of trying to be honorable, they end up objectifying all women. And it's just, it, it's just, is a nightmare for everybody. We'll say more about that. How do they end up objectifying all, all women? Because I think that's really, really important. Well, if you tell a guy that what you need to do is to bounce your eyes so that you never see a woman because if you see her you will be tempted to lust and if you're tempted to lust you'll cross a line like it's it's it, it sounds like a guy is getting on a moving sidewalk whenever he sees a woman and you can't get off that moving sidewalk and at the end of the moving sidewalk is lust so it's like the only way to avoid lusting is to never get on that moving sidewalk so you must never see a woman so you have to bounce your eyes off of any woman who's around you. So you're hypervigilant and you see women as threats as opposed to whole people made in the image of God. And then the solution to lust, according to every man's battle, they say when you're trying to quit lust, you take all of your sexual energy and you transfer it to your wife. And it literally says that she can be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. So they call women methadone for their husband's sex addictions, which is so degrading <laughs> because it's like saying, guys, male sexuality is all about objectifying women. And so your job as a guy is to get married so that you only objectify one woman. <laughs> and that's better, right? Like that's the message yeah, that they say. Like, because you're still going to treat her like an object. She's just methadone. And what does methadone do? If we think about this analogy, methadone is a drug that is used uh, to help wean people off of an opioid addiction. So to call a woman methadone is like saying, we know what you really want to do is look at that other woman naked, but you can settle for your wife and you can use your wife so that she can satiate you enough that you don't go after what you really want. And that's, lo and behold, when women believe that right. all men lust and that it's every man's battle, it turns out really badly for them. And this is one of the beliefs. I thought this was really interesting. We measured both whether women were taught it and whether women believed it at two different points in their life. So either before they were married or um, now. And this was one of the beliefs that even if you never believed it, if you were only taught it, it decreased your marital and sexual satisfaction. Wow. Even if you decided that you didn't believe it, you just heard it. And that was right. Wow. And wow. It, my, my thought is that probably if you're in, if you are in a church subculture that really teaches this, that probably you're married to someone who isn't the best too. And 
there's probably some other issues going on there that it just wrecks the church culture itself. Right. Yeah. Certainly probably somebody there believes it, right? Your spouse or somebody and you're, you're being influenced Mm -hmm. by it, even if you're resisting, which is an interesting thing, right? You can Mm -hmm. hear a teaching and resist it and still be influenced by it, which is really, uh, really tough. Interesting. Okay. Wow. So what, what else are there other, are there other kind of lies? I mean, those are kind of the, some of the big ones, but are there other things Mm -hmm. that you guys discovered or found that had been taught that we really need to get rid of? Yeah, well, one that's very close to that is that um, if you have sex with your husband, he won't watch porn. So you should have sex with your husband to keep him from sure. watching porn, that whole methadone idea. Again, that's very destructive. And that goes right along with the obligation sex message, which we were talking about earlier, that a wife is obligated to have sex with her husband when he wants it. That one actually had one of the saddest findings. Um when we looked at the obligation sex message, we found that the results of believing that had almost the same increase in the chance of having uh, primary sexual pain or vaginismus as prior abuse. So let me explain wow. what I mean by that. Yeah. So <laughs> um, believing the obligation sex message that you need to have sex with him whenever you, whenever he wants, what that says is your needs don't matter. Whatever you are feeling right now doesn't matter. All that matters is what he feels. And so you need to meet his needs. So you're really irrelevant. And if sex is supposed to be a deep knowing, then to tell a woman your needs are irrelevant it actually become, becomes a rejection. It's an unknowing. Sex becomes a rejection of you as a person and an erasure of you as a person. That's the same thing that abuse does because abuse says you don't matter. I have the right to use you. And so the statistical significance of believing the obligation sex message, which is taught throughout our evangelical books, has almost the same. I think there's a 0.1% difference in the confidence overlap of the confidence intervals um, for those for those two measures, obligation sex and prior sexual abuse. Wow. That's okay. So that's that's astounding and it's damaging. And that so that's that's where I think it's heartbreaking. And it sounds like you this kind of you you went through this to hear the Bible's being used in this way, right? To to really mm-hmm. damage people instead of free people. That's the opposite of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, you know, that a bad tree can't bear good fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. When we follow Jesus, we are not harmed. When we follow Jesus, Mm. we get into wholeness and we, we experience transformation. And yet when you follow what our evangelical books tell us about sex, we are harmed. You know, what's interesting about um, sexual pain is most people don't even know what vaginismus means. Um, and so let me just explain it for your listeners. It's an involuntary contraction of the vaginal, the wall, the muscles of the vaginal wall, where she isn't intending to do it, but she literally cannot relax those muscles. So they're clenched and it makes penetration really painful um, or difficult or even impossible. And just over 20%, I think the number is 22% of evangelical women have experienced that 7% to the, to the point that it is impossible. And that is roughly twice the rate of the general population. Wow. It's, it's long been known. There, there, are, um, journal, there are journal articles in the 1970s in some gynecological journals that talk about this, that 
conservative religious women, that's a big marker for vaginismus. So we've known about this for years, but no one's ever studied it. And vaginismus of people in their 20s, far more likely to have vaginismus than erectile dysfunction. And yet we all know what erectile dysfunction is. And when you scour Focus on the Family or Gospel Coalition or whatever, there are articles on erectile dysfunction. At the point that we wrote our book, there was nothing on vaginismus. And so when women get married, they're not necessarily they're obviously not expecting this. And first, so we just heard heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story of women who didn't even know this was possible and didn't have a word for it and thought they were just broken. Wow. Yeah, which is isolating and uh, painful, right? Just like it, it, I'm sure that that didn't help their marriages at all, right? Um, okay, so what's the hope? Like where, you know, where, so when we go this, I mean, all this, this, I could just, I could talk about this forever and rant about it and be angry, right? Like I'm just, because, hey, I grew up in the 90s. I heard all those messages and I get it. I've been influenced by it. And quite frankly, it makes me, makes me pretty mad, but, um, there is hope, right? And so where, where, where do we go and what, what actually does a, uh, a mutual satisfying, healthy sexual relationship in marriage look like? Well, first of all, it does need to be mutual. And, um, one of the big things we talk about in the book is what we call the orgasm gap. Um, so roughly 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during sex. Only about 49% of women do. So that's a huge orgasm gap. And when we're simply talking about sex as something what she needs to do, and you never talk about her sexual pleasure, there are so many evangelical books that never even mentioned that women should feel sexual pleasure or what, could. Why is that? Pleasure. I don't know. Like, there's a really funny anecdote in Love and Respect where um, a mother is talking to her daughter and the daughter is, you know, doesn't want to have sex. And the mom says, why would you deprive him of something which makes him so happy, but takes so little time? And oh, I no. find it very difficult to understand why someone who thinks sex should feel good for women would emphasize its brevity above all else. But, you know, he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not saying anything it good be, it shouldn't be a selling point but no um the good news is most of our sex books did talk about women's sexual pleasure now the way they did it, it was often icky um and they didn't get full marks for other things but our sex books at least did talk about how women could reach orgasm but most of our marriage books did not they portrayed sex simply as an obligation and if you grow up thinking you know that the man needs sex and the woman doesn't, then you have sex. And when it doesn't feel very good for her, you assume that, well, that's just the way it is. And that was, that was another big finding. Here's one that's really implicated in that. The idea, um, if teenagers believe boys will push your sexual boundaries, we call that the gatekeeping message. So when girls are told boys are going to push your sexual boundaries. And so you need to be careful. You you need to be the one applying the brakes. He's going to be always pushing the accelerator. So you need to be the brakes. When women believe that, then when they get married, they have a really difficult time enjoying sex because they've spent their entire life trying to stay in control and trying not to get aroused. Yeah. 
So then they get married and they have a really difficult time getting aroused. They don't know what feels good because they've never learned to listen to their bodies. And I'm not arguing for sex before marriage. I do I do have what I would call a biblical sexual ethic. So I do think sex is, is um, meant for marriage. But I think that the way that we tell people that they need to have sex on their wedding night is stupid. <laughs> yeah. I think that you need you need we need to tell couples how to recognize natural sexual progression, that there are natural steps. And the most important thing is for her to learn to listen to her body and not to move to the next step until her body is ready for it. And we go into this a lot in chapter four of the book. A lot of women have said, oh my gosh, if I had only read that before we got married. And and so we give a lot of steps on how to re rediscover that if you missed some major steps. But you know, that's a big thing. So women don't know how to feel aroused. Women don't know that, yeah, maybe intercourse isn't the thing that's supposed to do it for me. And you read all these books that tell you that he just needs sex and you just figure, well, I guess this just isn't for me. I guess I just should be happy mm. with the closeness that I get. For Women Only tells women that what he really needs isn't just sex. He needs to feel like you want it and enjoy it. And so you should, you should, you should let him know while you're having sex how glad you are to be here. And if you, even if you aren't experiencing pleasure, you should encourage him and let your words be heart words because he needs to know that you want him. But it never says that it's okay to speak up and say, hey, how about a little bit to the left? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Like, so it just, it doesn't give women the chance to, to advocate for something for themselves. Yeah. Which is that mutuality and communication, obviously is super important. You, you got to be able to, mm -hmm. to do that. Right. So. But that's really hard when you just don't know how to talk about sex, where you don't feel like sex is for you when you've grown up feeling like it's only for him. And so my hope is that um, as people read this book and the feedback we've been given is, so many people have told us I laughed because it is, there's a lot of funny lines and there really are. You kind of have to be funny when you're looking at some of the terrible things some of these authors said, but you know, I laughed, I raged and I, I cried for younger me, but I finally mm. feel freedom. And that's what we want is just for people to feel freedom. Like it doesn't matter if you've been married for 30 years and you've never had an orgasm, you can get there. Sometimes it just takes getting rid of some of these ideas and giving yourself permission to rediscover. Um, and, and then what we do in the book is a lot of reframing. So at the end of each chapter, we'll give a lot of messages we've currently taught in evangelical circles and show how you can reframe it. So in, for instance, instead of saying, boys will push your sexual boundaries, instead of telling teenagers that, you can say, it's natural to be sexually attracted to one another and it's natural to want to do stuff with one another, right. <laughs> but you should always respect each other's boundaries. And if someone is not respecting your boundary, that's a red flag that that relationship is not a healthy one. Right. And we can just say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds so much more healthy, right? Then, uh, yeah, like the... it's not a big deal. <laughs> Right. And so I'm convinced that this comes down to a, a fundamental uh, belief in evangelicalism that's so subtle that most of us don't even know it's there. And it's that it's sort of um, Gnostic in a way uh, that what's uh, spiritual is good. 
and what's physical is bad. And so mm-hmm. the way we talk about sex, we sort of tolerate it. We know it's a big deal that people have to have to do, but we have this idea um, we talk about it as if, well, it doesn't ultimately matter and it doesn't really, uh, and it's, which it could be not as far as I'm concerned for no further, couldn't be further from the truth of, of the gospel that, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. It's here now, right? It's here. So come and come and enjoy it. And I think uh, the, the marital relationship, the sexual relationship is all a picture of that. And so uh, that's, that's part of it. So I think there's a lot of actually deeper theology that like we've got to get in line and figure out mm-hmm. and apply, which is what I like about what, what you've done here. Yeah. Thank you. And I think too, when it comes to talking about sex, we need to get out of the garden and we need to get back to the cross. Because in the garden, the message about sex, of course, is they were naked and not ashamed. And we hear that a lot. Like, I will say that Uh, the evangelical church as a whole, when pastors do preach about this, that's the message they always give. Look, you know, this, there's nothing shameful about this. God created it. It's good. And that's, that's good. That's a good message. But we really need to come back as well to the cross (laughs) And remember, it's not just about not having shame. It's also about truly seeing the other person and truly serving. And that's where the other person has to matter. Like it isn't just, a, hey, this isn't shameful. You can have fun, which is a good message. But it also has to be, this is about fundamental relationship. And it's about the two of you together and it's about how we serve and it's not about power and it's not about authority. It's just about you two together, really learning who you are together, which means that we both matter. And that's, I think that's the message of the cross is that we both, we all matter. (laughs) And there's so much gendered stuff in sex. That's stupid. (laughs) Like um, just even the idea that he's always going to have the higher libido. That's the way it's always talked about, right? He wants sex and she doesn't. I don't know why. I think maybe it's that the evangelical church has to find gender difference so that there's a reason to put men in charge. So wherever we can, we need to say there's a definite gender difference because our church is so um, dedicated to finding reasons why the genders are fundamentally different. But libido is on a spectrum in both men and women. There is a greater difference among men than there is between the average man and the average woman. And there's a greater libido difference among women (laughs) than there is between the average man and the average woman. Wow. Okay. Do you have a, do you have that spectrum? Is that in there somewhere? Because that would be Um, fantastic. We talk about overlap. It's the the concept of overlapping bell curves. Let me give you another way of looking at it, which might be easier for people to understand. My great grandfather was five foot five. My great grandmother was five foot 11. My grandfather and my father were both over six feet tall because of their mother, because of her, not because of the short dad. Okay. Right. But there were not scientists knocking down their door saying, How is it possible that she is taller than you? Because we all know that height is on a bell curve. Right. <laughs> and there's, you know, the average man, I believe, is five foot 10. And the average woman is five foot five. And so, you know, if you think of a bell curve, I don't know how to describe it in audio, but you know, the, the, it, it, it's just a curve where it it looks like sort of an upside down. um, It looks almost like an upside down circle, but it's got little lines on the, (laughs) on the, 
both sides where it goes out, you know? And so there's a lot of people in that average. And if you take two standard deviations of 95%, you know, 95% of people are within that. And so in height, you're going to get, yeah, some guys who are five foot two and some guys who are six foot eight. And then there's, then there's the other 5% that are really on that, but you know, five foot two, six foot eight, you might get women who are like four foot 10 to five feet, 11, six feet, whatever. Um, <laughs> but there's greater difference between the average, between that 95% of women between four foot 10 and six feet, than there is between five foot five and five foot 10, the average woman, the average man. And so when it comes to libido, you're also going to have these overlapping bell curves where, yeah, you know, most men have a higher libido, but in 20% of marriages, she has the higher libido. And in 20% of marriages, they're roughly the same. So we need to stop talking that all marriages, he wants it all the time, because that's so damaging, especially for the high libido wives. Yeah. Yeah, because it doesn't reflect their reality. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they feel like freaks because all right. of our resources say he needs it. The way that you show him love is to have sex with him. Um, women don't need it. You need, you know, and then she's like, well, I must be a freak because I need it. And I must be really undesirable because he doesn't want it. And what am I supposed to oh. do? Right. So damaging. So damaging. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, so I think there is, there is a, a way forward. I think absolutely mutuality, love. Sorry, I'm going to say, I almost said love and respect, but I decided not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like the message is good. Respecting one another, caring for one another. Um, I love that. Uh, Sheila, so you can be found. There's there's a lot. We could talk about this forever. I think it's super fascinating. I love the way that, again, just that you're kind of breaking down some of the, uh, you know, problems and incorrect beliefs that we've been given so, so, so needed. Um, your website is to love, honor, and vacuum.com, which I think is hilarious. I should have asked you where you got that. Where'd, where'd you where'd you get that it was, name? It was actually the title of my first book, which was When You Feel More Like a Maid Than a Wife and a Mother. And it was about how to find a passionate adventure in marriage and not just a giant to-do list. So that's where that came from. But then I kind of have morphed since I started, but my traffic got so big, I couldn't rebrand. So. Yeah, it was, you're <laughs> stuck with it, but it is, it is a clever title. I like it. So to love on vacuum.com friends, and uh, you can get the book anywhere that you get great books. I know I've got my copy. You guys were kind enough to send one. Thanks for that. And uh, definitely it's called the great sex rescue. You should definitely pick it up. If you've ever struggled, ever heard any of these messages, ever had any kind of, uh, difficulty uh, with with sexuality, this is for you. Um, Sheila, is there anything you want to leave us with? I just think that as we talk about this more, we could really save the next generation. Yes. And my hope is that we will do that. Um, I have just heard from so many people who have said, I didn't think I was messed up. And then I read this book and I realized how many things I've internalized and I just feel so free. And if we can talk about this well, this is the biggest place of hurt in people is in their sexuality. And if we can start talking about this well, I really think that we'll see far more wholeness. We'll see far more Jesus in people's marriages when we're not just trying to live up to what we should do, but we understand what real intimacy and passion looks like. And that's what God has for us. And that's what I'd really like to see us get to. Wow. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.